Please stand with me now. We're going to read from the scriptures. And Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14 is our passage this morning. Galatians 3, 10 through 14. And I remind us as we hear this word read that this is not man's word, but it is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this word endures forever. Let us hear that word now. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. All of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer now. Our God and Father, we come to you thankful that you bring us into your presence and then you teach us by your word. We thank you that you have not left us without direction, but you have revealed yourself to us in the pages of Scripture. We ask that as we take our time to consider this passage that we would have a a right understanding of it spiritually, that it would penetrate our hearts, that it would not be dead to us, uh, but that it would be alive to us because we are alive to the things of God. We pray that that would be so by your Holy Spirit's working. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, last week, brothers and sisters, as we were in Galatians, we learned a lot about the word blessing. And I wanted us to see that as we talked about that word, that this is a big, a grand, a wonderful thing to be blessed in Christ, to be blessed as the children of Abraham. We talked about those privileges. And we all love blessings. It's what we pray for. It's what we desire. But as with many words in our language, there is often a word that is opposite to that word. We have what are called in the English language synonyms and antonyms. Kids, perhaps you've learned about synonyms. Synonyms are words of similar meaning. For example, the word glad and happy are similar in meaning. They're synonyms, right? But then there are antonyms. There are words that are the opposite in meaning. Take the word blessing and you ask the question, what is the word with an opposite meaning? It is the word curse. The scriptures speak much about these things. They speak about blessings and curses. These words are so important because they describe two possible states that every human being in this world is in. You are either in a state of blessing because you are in relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, or you are under the curse of the law and the curse of sin. And we know that the end result of that curse is death, judgment, and hell. 
You are either blessed by being united to Jesus Christ by faith, or you remain in a state of curse because of your many transgressions against a holy God. And you're never going to escape that cursed condition until you look to Jesus by faith. There's no other way to remove that curse. And that is the contrast that Paul will show us in our passage today. There is this pathway that you can try to gain your righteousness before God, but it is a dead end. You will only get so far. You won't get very far. You'll walk down that path of seeking to obey the law of God in order to gain righteousness before him, and you will come up against a dead end. There will be briars and thorns and curses upon that path. But then there is the path of blessing found in the one who took the curse for us, Jesus, the Son of God who bore the dreadful curse for our souls. And now this was important for Paul to explain because there was this foolish teaching going on in the churches of Galatia. There were these false brothers, Paul calls them, and there was this teaching circulating that said that every male believer that came to the faith needed to submit to this ritual act of circumcision and they needed to continue in these different ceremonies of the law. And they, in, in that regard, were, were thinking wrongly that they could somehow gain God's favor by means of these actions. And so Paul brings out this teaching about what the law of God says concerning our works concerning our efforts, in order to decimate this falsehood that was afflicting the churches, in order to make absolutely sure that they understood that the consequences of this teaching was deadly. It would only lead to curse. Paul goes as far as to say in Galatians that if they accept this false teaching, Christ will be of no benefit to them. He says in Galatians 5, he says, Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And the reason he says that so extremely in that way is because if they were to put their trust in something else other than Christ, Paul says, then you don't need him. Paul says, if you could gain your righteousness before God by the law, then Christ died in vain. What's this whole business about a cross and a resurrection and a savior and and substitution and atonement. What is all of this? You don't need this, Paul says, if that is what you think. Brothers and sisters, I think we can also be afflicted by these kinds of thoughts that were happening in the churches of Galatia, this kind of wrong perspective. This, we can have this focus upon a rigid list of very specific externals, and these externals have the tendency to produce pride and self-righteousness within us, There have been thousands of versions of this same error over the centuries. And Galatians is designed to work as an atom bomb upon all of our prideful pretensions. It blows them away. It reminds us of our standing before God. If we're going to do it by means of law, if we're going to do it by means of our obedience, Paul wants us to know where we stand. We stand cursed. And that is why he wants us to stay at the cross of Jesus Christ. That is where we must remain. That is where our boast must be, is only in the cross of Christ, Paul says. So to summarize the whole passage, particularly in the kids' notes, if the children look at point one, I'm trying to simply summarize the point of this whole section, and I would say it this way. Jesus took the curse of your sin so that you would be blessed. Jesus took the curse of your sin 
so that you would be blessed. So let's go into the passage now, verse 10. He says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Now as we look at the the opening words of verse 10, we think, what does it mean to be of the works of the law? That's one of those phrases in English that kind of begs the question of what does that mean? And that translation is quite accurate to the original text. However, it does beg the question of what does it mean to be of the works of the law? Who are these people that are cursed? If this is the category that we're talking about, it's very important to know what Paul is talking about. Well, here I want to read briefly from the ESV's rendering of this verse. Uh, And in this case, the English Standard Version provides a word that is not found in the original, but at least I think gets at the sense of the passage. It says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. That, I think, does get somewhat at the sense of what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the person that to any degree relies upon the works of the law, whether it's some external act like circumcision, this very externalistic, simplistic, one-time act, or any of their other law-keeping, any of the Ten Commandments, for example, if you rely upon that to be considered righteous before God, if you source your righteousness before God in that, he says, you are under a curse. It's true that in Galatians, it seems like the false teachers were mostly focusing upon a lot of externals. They were talking about circumcision. We know feast days were included. Paul was concerned about that. We could perhaps guess from that that maybe the dietary laws were in play, the different boundary markers between Jew and Gentile. But Paul sees it as a bigger issue than that. It's not just a few externals and whether we should do them or not. It is a matter of our understanding how do we come into favor with God. And Paul is saying, if you're going to rely on your law keeping to whatever degree, whatever piece it is, he says, you're going to be under a curse because the law of God is inflexible in its demands. It demands of you total, perfect, perpetual obedience, not just of your outward actions, but of the mind and heart as well. And Paul proves this by quoting from Deuteronomy 27, which is what our brother Todd read as we had the scripture reading. And it was a very strange ritual. It's strange to us as we read about what Moses commanded in Deuteronomy 27. Here's what the God's people were to do when they went into the promised land. Once they had gotten into the promised land, there were some tribes that were going to go up Mount Gerizim, climb up to the top. There were some tribes that went up Mount Ebal, climb up to the top. And then they were reading these curses and blessings off the mountain to the people. All the people were to listen to the blessings and the curses of the law. And it was a visual and audible reminder that God's people, they had been redeemed from Egypt. They lived under God's uh, commands and there were consequences to their sin. If they sinned against God, there would be consequences upon them. If they walked in God's ways, they would experience blessings that came from that. Now we should note, of course, that the law was never given to God's people as a means by which they would secure their right standing before God. They were never justified by keeping these commandments. 
Remember, the people are brought out of Egypt. What does God say in the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I am the Lord your God, keep my commandments. And so they are a redeemed people. They are called to be a holy people, a holy nation for God. But the law did have a lot of demands, didn't it? And one of the things that we learn from Galatians chapter 3 at a later point is Paul will tell us what one of the purposes of the law was. He says it was a tutor or a schoolmaster. And we'll study that later on in more detail, but you want to understand that one of the reasons that God gave this very expansive law to the people of God in the Old Testament was to show them just how sinful they really were and to drive them to Christ, Paul says. And so we'll have opportunity as we go on further to consider the different uses of God's law. You don't want to use God's law wrongly. It's sort of like a chainsaw that if you use it for the wrong things, it can be very destructive. But if you use it for the right things, it's a blessing, and God has given it for certain purposes. We'll talk more about those different uses, but briefly I would summarize the right uses of the law of God to be, first of all, to show us our sinfulness, that we need a Savior, Another purpose of the law is to restrain the evils of sin to some measure or another. It's not perfect in doing that, but it does clamp down on some of the wickedness of human society. And then another and a very important use is that as the redeemed people of God, which we are as his church, the law is given as a guide for us. It shows us the way of righteousness. It shows us the way of liberty and blessing and joy. And, and so it is a very good tool for teaching us that as well. But let's go back to Deuteronomy 27 and the curse. Now, as as our brother Todd read Deuteronomy 27, there was all those curses, right? It said, cursed be the person that does this. And everybody says, amen. And cursed be the person that does this. And everybody says, amen. And then it comes to the final verse of that section. And it's as if all the others were just a warm-up to perhaps the most difficult and painful of all the curses. Verse 26 of Deuteronomy 27, Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law, and all the people shall say, Amen. Now think about that. Do you find it hard to say Amen to that verse? Now on one hand, of course, we must say Amen. We should say Amen to such a verse because this is expressing God's righteousness. We love God. We love his holiness. We want to say amen to the law of God, right? But notice that the implications of this verse is a curse upon you. You're saying amen to your own cursing if you're not found in Christ. It says, cursed be the one who does not do all the commands of the law. And Paul describes that in Galatians. It has to be the person that continues unremittingly, constantly, perfectly in doing all the commands of the law of God. That's hard. That's impossible for us fallen sinners, isn't it? And so on one hand we say amen, but on the other hand we think this is pretty heavy. This is a curse upon everybody who fails to any degree in keeping the law of God. The law of God is inflexible and total in its demands. In baseball, we say three strikes and you're out. The law of God says one strike and you're out. And kids, this is the second point in your notes. Number two, God's law demands perfect obedience. But we fail in perfect obedience. That is why we need Jesus. 
And I was talking with one of my children just this previous week or two, and she was telling me as we were talking about an issue that we were working through, she said, Daddy, it's really hard to do the right thing. And I said, yes, you're right. It is very hard for us fallen sinners to do the right thing. That is why we need Jesus, because we cannot keep this law perfectly. We need the Holy Spirit to enable us to walk in newness of life. And she was realizing exactly what this passage is saying. We can't continue to go in the way of the law and abide in it perfectly. James comes to speak to this matter in James chapter 2, verse 10. He says this. It's a very humbling verse. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Now, James actually envisions for us an interesting scenario. So walk out this scenario with me for a moment. And this is a a hypothetical and impossible scenario, but just bear with me for the moment. Imagine, if you will, someone keeping the law perfectly with every single command God gave. They make it 40 years in life, not a sinful thought, not a sinful word, dutifully observing all the commandments of God. And I know this is ridiculous, but walk with me. They get to their 41st birthday, and they say an unkind word. And James says, you're out. That was it. You're cursed by the law. It's impossible, right? That's what James is saying. If we fail in any degree, at any point, we are guilty of the whole law and its curse. The Shorter Catechism says this about sin, to give us a sense of how serious a thing sin is. It says, what does every sin deserve? It says, every sin deserves God's wrath and curse both in this life and that which is to come. Every sin. Notice how it's stated. The catechism doesn't put it this way. You could put it this way. You could try. Do all the sins combined in a person's life eventually reach a point where they deserve God's wrath and curse? We could put the question that way. But that's not the way it's stated. It says, what does every sin deserve? God's wrath in the present life and in the age to come. And you can see how consistent that is with what Paul says and what James says. He says, James says we're guilty of all of it. Paul says we're under a curse. Now I would ask you, how do you respond to that? What is your reaction to what the Bible says about sin? Some will react to that and they'll say, God is making way, big, way too big a deal about sin. Somebody might think, surely one single sin cannot be that bad. But if you fear God, if you believe his word, if you tremble at his word, you're going to think instead, sin must be a very, very evil thing. That's what you should think as you look at these descriptions of the seriousness of breaking the law of God. You should think, God is holy, sin is an immense evil that must be done away with. And if you read the Puritans, you'll find them describing such things in great detail. One of the books on this topic is by Ralph Venning. He wrote the book, The Plague of Plagues. And he calls sin in that book the evil of all evils. And he spends 300 pages explaining how sin is such a bad thing. And that might sound like a bit of a depressing read, but how needful that is for us to understand the the evil of sin that we might see the beauty of Christ in redeeming us from it. No one ever hated sin too much. 
But people tend to diminish sin. That fallen human beings, they immediately fall into these practices. They fall into a pattern of self-justification. They either minimize sin and make it a little thing. Or they blame other people for their sins. One of the ways people diminish sin is to make the law more doable. They say, if this law is way up here, I'm going to bring it down to here, where I can get over it, where I can do it. And that was the wrong-headed perspective of the rich young ruler. You remember what he, when he came to Jesus and what he said? Uh, he, Jesus says, well, what are the commandments? You know, list them for me. You're a, you're a Jew. You should know these things. And uh, he lists, Jesus actually lists them there. And then what does the young man say? Smiling, probably. He says, all these commandments I have kept from my youth. And we think, yeah, right. This is ridiculous. What are you talking about? But that's what the perspective of some people bring to this situation. They look at the law of God. They said, I have been doing pretty good. Back in the time of Christ, there was a school of of thought amongst the the rabbis. It was from, this school of thought is particularly the school of Hillel. You remember there's Gamaliel and Hillel. And one of the things that Hillel said about the law, and you'll have to see how similar this is to things that we hear in the modern day. So listen to what Hillel said. In essence, he said, If you are able to keep the demands of the law at least by 51%, that would function as a pass mark for eternal life. This is the same kind of thinking that we hear today, right? People say, well, if my good works outweigh my bad works, I'm good. God will surely let me into heaven. And this contributes to people's perspectives of being, as we hear, basically a decent and good person. Well, I'm here to tell you there's a few problems with the 51% idea. The first problem is that if you think you are at 51% or that you're going to get to 51%, you are wrong. So that's the first problem. You don't understand your heart. Secondly, the Bible doesn't teach that 51% is sufficient. The Bible teaches that if you're going to keep the law of God to gain eternal life, 100% is the only thing that will do. So for those who rely on law, which is what Paul is describing in verse 10 for their right standing, they can only expect curses because they're basically trying to push a rock up a mountain that's going to keep falling back upon them and they're not going to be able to do it. So now Paul goes to express in Galatians 3, 11 through 12, these two different paths of justification is what I will call them, two different ways of living before God. Verse 11, but that no one is justified by the law And the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. And we see that throughout Galatians, Paul is using the Old Testament to prove his points because he's a man of the word, and the word of God in the Old Testament already spoke to these things. And so he quotes first from the prophet Habakkuk, and then he quotes from the book of Leviticus to prove these two different paths of living before God. And that is one of the key words that is repeated in both verses, that the one who is just by faith lives by faith. They live before God in fellowship and in relationship with him. But if you're going to choose the path of gaining your right standing with God by means of law, Paul says, well, that principle is different. That principle is by means of doing. And you're going to have to do all of it, he says. Now, if we want to get a bit of insight into this word live... I direct your attention to Luke chapter 10. 
Luke chapter 10, 25 through 28. This is another interaction Jesus had. This is the, not with the rich young ruler, but with one of the lawyers. This is right before the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in Luke 10, verses 25 through 28, the lawyer comes to Jesus. And Jesus, or, or he asks Jesus a question. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Notice his assumption. What do I do? to inherit eternal life. Verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. So Jesus actually presents a similar, almost a, almost verbatim quote to what Leviticus talks about in Leviticus 18. Do this and you will live in response to the lawyer's question. Do I I think that Jesus was recommending justification by works to the lawyer? No, not at all. I think one of Jesus' purposes in saying this to the rich young, or to the lawyer, was to awaken him to how far, how far short he fell in terms of keeping the law's demands. Because the next verse says, seeking to justify himself, he says, who is my neighbor? He wants to see whether he's been doing this all along, whether he's meeting the demands of the law. And then Jesus tells this parable, the Good Samaritan, to say, loving your neighbor is a lot more than you think it is. It's a lot harder than you think it is. It may be that Jesus was here seeking to humble this man, And based on his assumptions, say, yeah, if you're going to keep the law of God perfectly, you're going to really love your neighbor as yourself, you're going to really love the Lord your God with all your mind, you'll live. But this man was not going to do that. And so I think what Paul is describing is these two paths, call them two hypothetical paths of being righteous before God. One of them is one that that works, faith, the way of faith, and then there's one that is a dead end, as we said, the way of seeking to gain righteousness by means of your doing. So let's look at the first one in verse 11. Paul is quoting Habakkuk. He says that no one is justified by the law and the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Now when Paul quotes Habakkuk, he's speaking about this prophet that wrote all of these hundreds of years ago, and it was in the context of Habakkuk's complaint before God that these words were spoken. And you can go back to Habakkuk, perhaps later today if you'd like, and look at what the issues are in Habakkuk. But what was happening is that Habakkuk the prophet was complaining to God. He says, justice is not going forth, Lord. When are you going to act? There's nothing happening, it seems. Where is going to be the fulfillment of your promises? It was a lament about why it seemed that God was not acting on behalf of his people and for Habakkuk. And he's saying justice is not going forth. And in the midst of that, the Lord speaks to his prophet. He says, wait upon me. My word will be fulfilled. It's going to happen, Habakkuk. And then he says, the just or the righteous one shall live by faith. And that's valuable for us to think about that original context because that is often the situation that we're in in the life of faith. We're waiting upon God to do something. We're waiting for the fulfillment of his promises and what the word of God is saying to us is that you're not going to be righteous by all these things you do for God. You're going to be righteous when you believe in his word and wait upon him. He's going to account you righteous in his sight. 
It is this way of faith that is the only way of life with God that is really possible. And so children, this is the third point in your notes. Number three, God considers us righteous before him when we believe his word and the things it teaches us about who Jesus is and how he saves us. We're looking to Christ, Paul says, and we are just like Habakkuk, waiting by faith upon God to fulfill his promises, some which are already fulfilled, others which we're waiting to see the fulfillment of. This is the way of faith. And he says, it is evident that this is the way to be right before God because this is what the word of God says is how we are righteous. Now Paul, in verse 12, he quotes from Leviticus. And he he has some statements about the law that we need to consider here. He says, yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Now when he says something like, the law is not of faith, that sounds very negative, doesn't it? We're thinking, what exactly does, what is he contrasting here? I think there are some things that this does not mean, and I want to explain what this does not mean to you. I do not believe that Paul is saying that a life of faith and a life of obedience to God are in contradiction. He can't mean that. Paul tells us elsewhere that saving faith manifests itself in a life of good works. You think of Ephesians 2, we're saved by grace through faith, and that of not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, and then what does it say? We're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for unto good works, which God prepared for us to walk in. So we know that Paul's not saying faith and obedience are in contradiction. Elsewhere in Galatians, he's going to talk about the life of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit, which is all in consistency with God's law. So it doesn't mean that. It does not mean that loving God's law and obeying God's law is contrary to a life of faith. Just turn to Psalm 119, for example, and study all the descriptions of the law of God and their descriptions from a believing heart. They're they're descriptions of the law of God from a man who loves God, who is experiencing God's mercy and trusts in God's mercy, not in himself, and yet loves the law of God. So we certainly see that those things are not in contradiction. So in what sense, then, is the law not of faith? Well, if you narrow it to one topic, if you say, how is a person justified? If we're just going to ask the question, are there two ways of being justified before God? Then the principle of what the law demands is not the same as the principle of faith. The law, by nature, demands perfect obedience. And if you're going to attempt to use the law that way, which I would not recommend doing that. In fact, I would tell you, don't do that. Do not use the law as a means of gaining your justification before God. That's what the passage is about. But let's say, hypothetically, somebody tries. And he says, well, then it's going to be the one who does them, does the commandments and does all of them, who will live before God. Here's how Calvin describes this matter of contradiction between faith and living by law in this context. He says, the contradiction between the law and faith lies in the matter of justification. You will more easily unite fire and water than reconcile these two statements, that men are justified by faith and that they're justified by the law. The law is not of faith. That is, the law has a method of justifying a man which is wholly at variance with faith, the man who shall do these things. 
The difference lies in this, he says, that man, when he fulfills the law, is reckoned righteous by a legal righteousness, which he proves by a quotation from Moses. Now, if you go back to Leviticus 18, you might think, I'm not sure that that's really what the intent of that verse originally was. And I think you're right. I don't think that Paul, or I don't think Moses was telling God's people to be justified by your works. I don't believe that that was the intention. But it's a hypothetical. It's saying, if you're going to adopt this false teaching that these false teachers are propagating, and you're going to gain your righteousness by means of law-keeping, you're going to have to do them, and you're going to have to do them all. And this is not a possible path for us, is it? We see a picture of what it looks like to try to keep the law for our justification in Pilgrim's Progress. Perhaps you remember, very shortly after Christian sets out on his journey to the wicket gate where he was directed by Evangelist, the preacher of the gospel, he runs into an unsavory and very unhelpful character. Do you remember this man's name if you've read the, the book? Mr. Worldly Wiseman. Mr. Worldly Wiseman had some counsel for Christian. He, he told Christian that whatever evangelist said was junk. Don't listen to him, if I was to paraphrase what Mr. Worldly Wiseman says. He says, I have a much easier way to get rid of your burden of sin. Just listen to me. He's saying, evangelist is going to send you on this crazy journey. It's going to have all these trials and difficulty, this way of faith, the narrow path. Forget it. It's a waste of time, he says. He says, I have a quicker way. All you need to do, Christian, is go to the village of morality. And there, there is a man. He's a very helpful man. His name is Mr. Legality. And he will help you remove your burden. And so Christian says, well, that sounds nice. This sounds easier. And so Christian sets out on the journey. He says, I'm going to go to the village of morality. In other words, I'm going to seek to get rid of this burden of sin by my law-keeping. And what happens is as he journeys near the village of morality, he comes into view of Mount Sinai, representing the law. He runs into these fearful sights and sounds and earthquakes and shatterings, and he's thinking, I can't do this. Listen to how it's described in Pilgrim's Progress. So Christian turned out of his way to go to Mr. Legality's house for help, but behold, when he came close to the hill, it seemed so high, and also the side of it that was next to the wayside did hang so much over that Christian was afraid to venture further, lest the hill should fall on his head. Wherefore, there he stood still, and he did not know what to do. Also, his burden now seemed heavier to him than while he was In his way, there came also flashes of fire out of the hill that made Christian afraid that he should be burnt. Therefore, he did sweat and quake for fear. And this is a picture of how as we come to the law of God, it doesn't relieve our burden. It just makes our burden heavier, doesn't it? It just says, you haven't done this, you haven't done this, you haven't done this, and you haven't done this. And oh, by the way, you also haven't done that either. Not perfectly. And so Christian is experiencing this. His burden is growing heavier. The mountain's going to fall upon him and curse him if he's going to rely upon this law in order to redeem him. And I think what is being described here is much like what Paul in Romans 7 is describing about his experience with the law. Romans 7, 9 through 11. Think about how similar, similar this is. Paul says, I was alive once without the law. He says, I was doing good. Blameless before God. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, if he could do it, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. 
And I think what Paul is reflecting on in Romans 7 is when he finally was convicted by the law of God and he saw his sinfulness before God, he's saying, I was undone. I was dead. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't keep this law. It just, it cursed me. He was not the exemplary law keeper that he thought he was. When he was confronted on the Damascus road and, and Christ revealed himself to Paul and Paul realized, I am, not, I am killed by this law. I can't be... I can't keep this law for my justification, and it's not going to sanctify me either, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And so it is with us, brothers and sisters, if we would try the path of gaining our standing before God by means of anything that we have done, we will find that Mount Sinai will eventually crush us. Now, don't use the law that way. There are good ways to use the law of God, but this is not the way to use it. We can use the law of God when we are the redeemed sons of God and we walk in that pathway not to gain righteousness but before God but out of immense gratitude and love for our Savior. So now we go on to verses 13 through 14. We've, we've thought much about the law and our inability to keep it and the curse but now we want to look to the solution, brothers and sisters. Thanks be to God there is a solution because without Christ there's just curse. After we have come to alive to our lost condition, after we've realized how much the law condemns us, then we need to be at the point that the Philippian jailer was at when he said, what must I do to be saved? Look at verses 13 through 14. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Hallelujah. This is the answer, brothers and sisters. The Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed us from this curse of the law. To every degree, he has redeemed us. No curse hangs over you if you are in Christ. He has paid the purchase price of our redemption to set us free. He did so by taking the whole weight of that curse upon himself. He drank the cup of God's wrath down to the very bottom by bearing our sins on the tree. He took the curse so that you might be blessed. He was condemned so that you could be declared righteous. He was put to death so that you could live. And here Paul quotes again from the Old Testament, this time from Deuteronomy 21. It's this this really awful law. It's awful in the sense of how gruesome and difficult it is, and it's a picture of what would happen when people under the Old Testament were convicted of a capital crime. They would be put to death and they could be hanged. They could not be left upon the tree, but they were hanged there as an example of one that was under the curse. And that is what, Paul says, has Jesus experienced for us. He is under the curse. He was hanged on the tree as a visible representation, not just dying for his sin, because he didn't have any, but dying for the sins of his people. As the word of God says in Isaiah 53, he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. There he was, the innocent lamb of God between two criminals, He was between two men deserving of death, and he didn't deserve death. Though he had done no wrong, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement that we deserved fell upon him so that we could have peace with God. 
Perhaps you have come to the point that you do realize that the law condemns you. And if that's the point you're at today, that's a good thing, that you realize with spiritual eyes, you understand who you are before God, and you say, I am condemned, I am undone, I have no hope in myself. That is a good place to be, and if you're there today, I want you to understand that you do not have to carry that burden any longer. You do not have to bear that curse. You cannot carry that weight yourself. The burden of the condemnation of the law will ultimately slay you like it slayed Paul. But what the law could not do, God did by sending his own son. As Romans 8 verse 3 says, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, our inability to do it, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. All the guilt, all the condemnation he took for us. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 2 that Christ himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray. That's how all of us were as Isaiah 53 says. But now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. He went on the tree so that we don't have to go on the tree. We don't have to bear the curse. He was cursed so that you could be blessed. Children, this is the fourth point in your notes. Jesus did what you could not do. He took the curse of sin for you. As verse 14 says, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And we learned previously that the work of the Holy Spirit is this gift of God that shows forth that we are the saved ones. Paul said much about how important the Holy Spirit is, that the Galatians didn't do anything to get this Holy Spirit. They just heard the word of the gospel, they believed, and they received. And now the blessings of salvation that are found in Christ Jesus are spreading to all the nations of the world because Jesus took the curse. Now the nations are being blessed. And as we reflect upon Paul's words to us today, it's important to recognize that anytime you come to a sermon and come to a message like this, people are in different places, spiritually speaking. And I want to press on you a bit to consider what spiritual condition am I in as a listener right now? The first category of listeners are those who are apathetic. There are some that hear a message like this and they just don't care that much. They don't see their sin as very awful, and they don't see Christ as very needful. The gospel message is un- uninteresting, it's unnecessary, it's strange, it's, it's foolishness to them, as Paul says in Corinthians. So it might sound like white noise to you if you're in that position. You think, I just, it's just white noise, I don't understand these things, I don't see the need for these things. But what, I, what I, my intention is, if you are in that position today, is to waken you to your condition. I want you to understand where you are. That the sin in your life and the curse that comes upon it is like a quicksand that will eventually consume you and destroy you. You need to wake up to the truth of these things. You need to wake up to the law of God. You need to wake up to the holiness of God. You need to wake up, wake up to the salvation of God found in Christ. A second category that people may be in is those that are feeling the weight of conviction. This is the person who is beginning to see how wretched they are before God. 
They're beginning to understand what the law requires. And when they hear those curses of the law, there's a wincing kind of effect that it's, ah, oh, it hurts. It's, it convicts. It condemns. I'm, I'm, that's me. I, I can feel the weight of that conviction is what this person is experiencing. And as I said before, it is good if you are in a state of conviction, but then my direction to you is do not despair as if you have to remain in a state of cursing. Look to Jesus Christ. Set your eyes upon him. Look to the crucified Savior with eyes of faith, and that burden will fall off. You won't have it anymore. Those also, there's another category, it's those who have experienced the freedom of sins forgiven. They've, they know that their burden has been removed by trusting in Jesus Christ. And if that is where you are today, count this message as a reminder to remember the glorious redeeming work of your Savior. Remember with love. Remember with gratitude what Jesus has done for you. Remember the scene of Pilgrim's Progress once again. You remember after Christian didn't go to the village morality, he got back on the narrow way, and where did he end up? He ended up very soon at the foot of the cross. And this is what happened when Christian brought his burden to the foot of the cross. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the, to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, he has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood still for a while to look and wonder For it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and he looked again, even till the springs that were in his head set the water down his cheeks. That's what we need to do, brothers and sisters. If you've had your burden removed, you need to look at the cross again. You stand like Christians stood and wonder at what Jesus has done for you. That burden, it falls off. The cross removes it, and then it falls into the empty tomb of Christ, never to be seen again. That's why Paul can say at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, the the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who gives us the victory. And all that's gone. No more sting. No more death. Because Jesus has removed it. And so we can say together, brothers and sisters, as we see the amazing truths that are set forth in Galatians, hallelujah, what a savior. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your plan of salvation, predetermined before the foundation of the world, and then brought to pass in history through our Lord Jesus Christ to redeem us from the curse of the law. We thank you for doing what we could not do. We praise you, our Lord Jesus, for bearing the curse for us so that we could receive the blessing. What a gift you have given to us to be blessed, to receive the Spirit, to be granted an eternal inheritance. We thank you for your amazing love. Amen.